You're listening to Race Towards Health, a podcast from the Health Equity Council at the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Race Towards Health examines a broad range of topics connected to achieving health equity, including discussions on the impact of race on our nation's health. Please visit chronicdisease.org to find other Race Towards Health podcasts or for more information about NACBD's work on racial justice and health equity. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm pleased to have with us this morning um, as part of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors Health Equity Council's podcast, Daniel Dawes, JD, is consultant and healthcare attorney and executive director of health policy and external affairs at Morehouse School of Medicine. Uh, in addition to his executive role, he's also associate professor in the Department of Community Health and Preventive Medicine. He has extensive background in health policy, especially policies that are impacting health equity and the elimination of health disparities, which has allowed him to be a widely sought after expert by local, state, and federal policymakers, as well by, as well as by leading academic institutions, associations, community-based organizations, and companies. He's highly respected for his capacity to achieve sound policy changes in a nonpartisan and collaborative manner. And during the negotiations around health reform, he was instrumental in organizing the National Working Group on Health Disparities and Health Reform, which is a work group of more than 300 national organizations and coalitions that work to ensure that the health reform law included 62 health equity provisions to reduce disparities in health status and health care, and was instrumental in moving the Affordable Care Act forward during the Obama administration. He also serves as principal investigator, working closely with the NRC program director staff and, consult, and, and consults to ensure successful implementation of that project. Um, he's also co-authored 150 Years of Obamacare, and the book that we're going to be talking about today is The Political Determinants of Health. So join me in welcoming, as you listen this morning, Daniel Dawes. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much, Vivian. It's great to be with you today. So I must say, I found your book a great history lesson. Um, so many things I didn't know as it relates to uh, the political context around equity or the inequities that have impacted our marginalized and vulnerable populations. So, uh, and I, I can't say that it's been kind of right on time given the political climate that we're in now talking about the political framework that's driven a lot of the social injustices and health inequities in our, in our country. So tell me a little bit about why you wrote the book. Sure, so, you know, after I wrote 150 years of Obamacare um, and I highlighted that you know, very difficult journey uh, to realizing the dearth of policies that we had, right, to move that needle of health equity forward. I kept asking myself, well, how exactly did they, um, you know, uh, how exactly did they go about creating these policies and why did they do that? What actually drove these inequities in our society? Why did they feel the need to actually use policy uh, to counter that? And so as I was digging, and as we know in, in our public health um, you know, arena, we have been privileged, I think, when it comes to understanding these multiple interacting determinants of health. We've identified that the social determinants of health play an outsized role in our overall health and well-being. Um, you know, these determine how long we're going to live on this earth, right? And I kept asking myself, well, 
Okay, we're talking about social determinants. These are your structural conditions in which we are born in, we live in, we play in, um, we age and we die in. But if, if that's the case, what created these, what's perpetuated these inequities, right? Social determinants, yes, but it just felt like we weren't moving further upstream. We weren't hitting the instigator, that underlying instigator of, of these health inequities that we've either observed in our communities or experienced. So in researching these drivers and understanding uh, what really proliferated these inequities, especially in our country here in the United States, I kept saying to myself, well, what actually caused those structural conditions to be in the first place? And it really brought me even further back than 150 years. So going to the start of when we had brought in African slaves into the United States, when you saw the colonies now devising laws intentionally, not only to legalize slavery, we, we looked, of course, and you understand that Massachusetts was the first colony, followed by Connecticut and New York and others, right, that legalized this horrible institution. So we know that's one of the root causes when it comes to political instigators. But afterwards, as I was digging into the laws, as I was trying to understand what happened then, right, to to, to undermine individuals, black and indigenous populations in this country from being able to realize their optimal health, their full potential. You see that these policymakers created laws in addition to legalizing slavery that intentionally prohibited slaves and indigenous populations from raising their own food, from learning to read and write, from being educated, from raising their own money. Uh, they were prohibited from congregating, right, and socializing with one another. Uh, if they traveled at night, had to carry lanterns. If uh, slaves wanted to go beyond a one-mile radius off the plantation, they had to have permission slips, essentially, right? They were prohibited by law um, to do that unless they had permission from their slave owners. So as you're digging into this, you're realizing, wait a second, you know, we talk about all of these issues as social drivers of inequities, these social determinants of health. And yet these laws were basically prohibiting these individuals from realizing their full potential. They were undermining their ability to address the social determinants of health um, at that time. And then you saw these policies being recycled uh, throughout the years, right? From one century to the next, from one generation to the next. And, um, and it, it led to me saying, huh, this is really interesting. Now we understand then how in the United States, these inequities, racial inequities in particular, have become so entrenched in our structures, in our communities, um, how they become so concretized that you can understand how difficult it is then, right? Unless you understand the historical context, unless you dig very deeply to understand the evolution of laws and policies in this country, um, that the status quo, you know, didn't just happen organically. You know, this was intentional. Uh, it was not an accident. And that caused me to really, you know, look into the social determinants of health to understand what was undergirding every single one of these. And across all the determinants of health, whether they're social, environmental, behavioral, um, healthcare, there are a political, there's a political determinant, right? Undergirding all of that. And of course, undergirded by racism.
So I wanted to flesh that out a little bit to understand what those drivers are, both politically and commercially, how they all come together to create the ecosystem that we find ourselves in today. Yeah, that's, uh, I really like the, the, the historical picture you've painted for us. But, you know, I think that information historically has the potential to get lost with our younger generations. And how do we how do we infuse that information into them to get them to understand that the power that they have as an advocate advocacy for their own health, for some of the to to be a part of the process to work toward eliminating these disparities and these health inequities. What do you think we need to do as far as the educational piece to ensure that this message keeps getting being told? and keeps being highlighted. And this political framework and context around these issues is- Oh, love that question. So, yeah. I think, you know, when you talk about the issue of political determinants of health, and and let me actually just, um, you know, define what I mean by that, right? So I define political determinants of health as involving the systematic process of structuring relationships, um, distributing resources, and administering power, operating simultaneously in ways that mutually reinforce or influence one another to shape opportunities that either advance health equity or exacerbate health inequities. It may seem quite abstract, but in in thinking about this definition, and let's put it now in contemporary terms, right? So for most of us, I grew up in a black community. I grew up in a community where there was a major highway um, that cut right through the neighborhood. I know that you, as one of our distinguished public health leaders, right, you've been around in cities across this country and you've seen, whether it is in Overtown in Miami, Florida, if you go to St. Petersburg, Florida, if you're in Atlanta, in Mechanicsville, Georgia, um, in, in Atlanta, if you go to Baltimore, New York, right, or, or even in Newton near Boston, um, you go out into the Midwest, you go to Detroit and even Omaha, Nebraska, right, and beyond. In many black um, communities, we oftentimes see a major highway cutting right through. So you talk about social, um, these structural conditions, right? Where we are living in. Well, a lot of folks, when I grew up, I just thought, oh, you know, it just happened to be there. Well, we probably built around it. I, I didn't quite understand, right? That's not normal. It didn't just happen by chance. Um, as we now look from public health research, black and brown folks have the highest rates of asthma in this country right? We are breathing in the most polluted air. And when you look at, again, at the context in which we're living in these conditions, if you look not only at the highways, if you look at in New York, for instance, um, go to Harlem. In Manhattan, six of the seven bus depots were, were located in Harlem. Is that by accident? No. When you start peeling back the layers to get to the root causes, of how these things um, originated to begin with, we need to do a better job tying the social determinants of health to their political roots. That way, that's the way that we're gonna truly understand what is fueling, right? Or what is driving um, the results that we see in our community. So for me, I look at it now in terms of, okay, here we are today. Um, This should be very real for everyone look at the inequities in terms of the conditions in which people are living today. 
So I talked about this highway, I talked about the bus depots, you know, in many communities, housing was raised, apartments and houses were raised in the black community and, and in Hispanic communities. Um, and again, they were then sold cheaply to real estate developers, who um, then turned that around, built housing for more affluent communities, right? And again, that displaced hundreds of thousands. And in fact, over half a million African Americans were displaced as a result of that, um, um, that experience. Now, how again did those come to be? So in looking at how this happened, in going back into the laws, into these policies, you recognize that there were there was a highway act that was created at the federal level. There was a housing act that creating this urban renewal program, right? And these laws were then implemented in concert with state and local policymakers. So they determined, right? where to place the highways. They determined which houses or apartments to raise so they could build um, new housing. They determined where to locate these bus depots or these toxic waste sites or factories that you know more privileged and powerful communities would never agree to. So again, understanding that you have to say to yourself, huh, if that's the case, how do I get involved? To your point now, right? How do I get involved in addressing these political determinants of health. And I think, you know, it is first and foremost, um, understanding that structural barriers, right? And, and the resulting inequities that we experience today, they're not permanent. That's really the good news. Because we know through history, while there has been, you know, limited success at that federal level in, in moving or trying to get policies that would move that health equity needle, there was still some examples of successes. What that tells me is that racism does not sleep in this country. And those who are opponents of health equity work diligently, diligently. They are working overtime to unravel the little gains that we can make, trying to keep the status quo, trying to keep this racial hierarchy in place, right? And, um, and we see that, I mean, before our very eyes during this triple pandemic today. So where a lot of folks thought it's too abstract, they couldn't see how racism plays a role. They couldn't see those uh, political determinants of health inequities. They couldn't see it, right? They just didn't believe it. Now we're in a triple pandemic, not only with COVID-19, but with this racial and social reckoning that we're in, along with the issues of um, loneliness and depression, anxiety that is consuming us. Now you can see the impact, right? That these political decisions at all levels, whether at the federal level or the state or even local levels, you see that playing out, right? Um, before our very eyes, it has become more real. I hope that we are taking notes we are looking, we're observing, we're understanding how this actually plays out. So in the book, I talk about you know, the history. I bring in political science and legal and public health lens to this work. But if you're like me, you know, the theoretical can be, become abstract. How do you get yourself involved? I think it starts first with what you know, Dr. Satcher um, you know, constantly reminds me. Dr. Satcher, David Satcher was our 16th US Surgeon General and the founder of the Satcher of Leadership Institute, been a great mentor and friend to me. Um, I think one of our nation's um, health equity leaders, distinguished health equity leaders, just like you, Vivian. So, so Dr. Satcher reminds me that what we really need, um, first and foremost, are leaders, champions who care enough, 
we need you know young folks to understand um, that you have to really have your heart in this. You've got to care about these issues, right? And then after that, we need leaders who know enough. They are studying, right? They are understanding these multiple drivers and determinants of health, understanding when they are at play. That is so critical. So after knowing, right, and understanding um, these determinants, these drivers of inequities, we also then need to persevere because one of the things that you've heard me um, say in this health equity movement is that it's not for the faint of heart. This is a, an exhausting effort, right? You know, health equity is disruptive. It is exhausting. And, and, and we can see why those who have been fighting for the status quo continue to channel every resource, every ounce of energy into maintaining it. So it is an exhausting uh, movement. But nonetheless, we need folks who understand that you have to persevere. And then lastly, we need leaders, we need champions who have the courage to do enough that, you know, once the political winds shift, um, even though we may not be afforded um, all of the um, the results that we're looking for politically, right? In terms of voting and government and policy and so forth. We may not have the ideal situation, but there are things that we can do still within the system that we have to move that needle. So I, I encourage young people to make sure that they follow those four steps, that they really have bolstered themselves, um, you know, to develop that courage, um, that they understand that you've got to be patient because change does happen very slowly as we've seen in this country. And if you push too far, then we know that um, the, that political pendulum comes back really fast. So there is this game um, that we need to understand. We need to understand the levers that have been pushed and pulled and which ones at the time, right at the right time um, that we can use to really affect the changes. Is it ballot augmentation, right? Let's say you have a, a situation where you're in a state and um, you know you may have policymakers that are adverse, um, averse to um, the uh, health equity agenda. Well, you can use ballot augmentation, right? If your state allows it, um, where these are citizen-initiated ballot measures, and they have about a 25% success rate, more than legislation does. But yet, we as health equity champions haven't been utilizing them as much, right? Like we could. And I, I don't know of any major ballot initiatives really, except for a few lately since 2018 until today that have used it and been successful. So there are a host of, of tools that we can use to push that, but I do think it really starts with educating our own selves about these issues because you know when you think about racism, when you think about these barriers, there are structural, institutional, interpersonal, and yes, even intrapersonal barriers that may hinder ourselves from moving forward. And so we need to be aware of those, understand it, uh, understand them, and then, you know, uh, move accordingly. I, I like what you said, the last couple of points that you made, um, raising how all of the, the, the political nuances influence those social determinants and how we need to be aware of those. I want to dive a little deeper in your book when you start talking about your political determinants of health model, that framework you use, and you encompass kind of three, three prongs, right? You talk about voting and government and policy. 
And I really want to talk, uh, if you could, a little bit about um, how our the apathy that has come around voting in communities of color, um, how government and, and privilege has come into play, and how some of those um, discrimination and biases have kind of impacted the work around health equity, and then talk about policy. And maybe we can tie all of those up in a nice bow. I really like the analogy you used, Daniel, and I'm going to steal it, when you talk about politics or or the political determinants being the, the stressor on the rope. And the threads of that rope are the yes. social determinants. And the tighter that that rope becomes really does impact the, the amount of leverage we have and the amount of, of work that needs to be done to really address some of those social determinants. I'm going to use that. I just want you to know. Yeah. I'll oh, give you, you credit. But I thought it was a great yes. analogy. <laughs> so if you can talk a little bit about those three, those three different areas, that'd be great. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for that opportunity. So yes, yeah, so you've identified um, three of these, right? And it, it it really was, in terms of creating this model, it was my intention to create something based on the evidence of what has been used, right, to either hinder health equity or has been used to advance health equity successfully in many respects, right? Right. And so right. what are they? And, 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 be, and beneath each one, of course, there are uh, various factors that we need to be aware of. So, you know, taking lessons from the advocates um, back in 1865, uh, who had successfully created the first major policy um, that addressed the social determinants of health, the Freedmen's Bureau Act, right? It's, it's and it, essentially, it was the first, what I call comprehensive and inclusive health reform um, law that passed uh, the US Congress that was signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln. And, and during mm -hmm. that negotiation, you know that there were folks who were weary about um, creating a bill that would stop the separation of children from their mothers, enslaved children and mothers, the breakup of these enslaved mm -hmm. families that would actually provide um, food and clothing, adequate food and clothing to these individuals that would provide access to medical care, to health care uh, services uh, for these individuals, to education and employment opportunities and security, right? Things that we would, you know, come to basically bring, bring under the umbrella of the social determinants of health, which is why I call it that first major comprehensive, inclusive um, law addressing these social determinants of health for our most marginalized and vulnerable population, right? And so mm -hmm. we know then what happened over the course of that uh, statute's history. Um, every, from the time that it was being negotiated, right, there was opposition against it. Um, there was one provision in particular, though, that we know drummed up the most opposition, and that was providing healthcare access. Now, Abraham right. Lincoln, President Lincoln, the spirit of compromise, decided he was going to um, cut that provision then so that he could get some agreement, get that bill passed, and then sign it. So he did that. But but what you saw during that episode, and I, I oftentimes go, go back to that one, the first successful major health equity bill uh, from our federal government. I go back to that one because there are a lot of lessons learned that you tie in this issue of voting, um, government, and policy, right? Because at that point, you know, thankfully, they had, um, the stars had aligned politically. And the stars align very well in this country, what we've learned when there is basically a crisis. Isn't that something? It takes a crisis mm -hmm. for us to realize. Absolutely. Yes, to realize an equity-focused policy. 
when when things are going, you know, uh, when things are calm, um, mm-hmm. things are going well, there's no appetite to really elevate health equity. But during a crisis, whether it is a war, whether it's a, nat- a natural disaster or unnatural disaster. Or a pandemic, or, like COVID-19. Well, 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 actually, actually, I was going to talk about that too. That's that's actually an outlier. I'm going to talk about that for a second then since you raised Okay, all right. I, I'm glad you did. So, you know, or, or a Great Depression or depression. Those moments, we've been able to realize um, some equity-focused policy, right? But it's pandemics mm-hmm. which are interesting because from 1793, once we became a constitutional republic, back in 1789, right? When yellow fever struck the United States in uh, Philadelphia uh, in mm-hmm. 1793, all the way until today, we've never been able to realize an equitable response, an equitable policy response, right? Until we got into this year. Uh, this year now was the first time in US history that we got the federal government to actually pass legislation that included some, it wasn't as robust as we really needed. But our our champions, right, on the outside, as well as in the inside of our government, um, were able to get some provisions that would address the inequities that we saw early on, right? So we never before saw it. This year, thankfully, because of leaders like you and others who are listening to us, on this podcast, because of their efforts at the grassroots and the grass tops, we've now been able to actually add pandemics now to that list, which is really exciting. Okay. That you know what? As much as it 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 has um, hurt me to know that we were repeating history, that our hypothesis was correct, that during this pandemic we were gonna see the same result, that it was gonna be the same group of people on the downside of advantage and opportunity that would be most negatively impacted, especially the black and brown community, communities of color, um, immigrant mm-hmm. communities, people with disabilities and lower socioeconomic status communities. But, but we knew people of color were gonna be disproportionately impacted. But what shocked us initially when policymakers, right? Public health officials at um, various departments of public health, um, legislators in these states, they didn't want us seeing this data. And we said, well, how in the world can we align the resources if we don't have access to this data? So we created a coalition called We Must Count. This coalition went into various states to say, we need this data. And, right. um, and thankfully, we had health equity leaders in South Carolina, in Virginia and Richmond, in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Chicago, Illinois, and Michigan, who gave us that data, a snapshot, finally, we had of what was happening in black and brown communities. And to our um, surprise, it was even worse than we had thought. We knew it was gonna be disproportionate, but we didn't expect Mm -hmm. that in South Carolina or in Richmond, Virginia, or Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that 100% of the deaths at that time were African-Americans. We're African-Americans, We were shocked, right. So we thought, oh my gosh, this is even worse than we thought. So we've got to do something about it. With that data, we then were able to say, oh, policymakers, you now know, you can't deny it like we've been denying since 1793 that, oh, we just don't Mm -hmm. have the data. We don't have the evidence. Now we have the data. It is right before your eyes. We must do something about it, okay? 
we must do something about it. We must provide an equitable response to these communities that are disproportionately impacted. So that evidence, that data is a powerful political determinant of health, right? And it, and it come, comes- I agree back. with you, but I'm gonna play devil's advocate for just a All second. All right, no. All right. Because I'm an, I'm an epidemiologist, I look at data. So we have yes. the data. Yes. We've painted that, that national picture. Yeah. We've, paid, we've, we've done it nationally, regionally, locally, right? We, we know what's going on now, but here's my concern. With the Affordable Care Act, we had minimal data elements that were within that act that said we must capture those, and we yes. weren't then. Now we've seen the data that we need to capture, and we're still not talking about minimal data elements that we should be capturing to, to, to paint that picture of what's happening in our Black and Brown communities. I still haven't seen anything, even though it's been recognized, I haven't seen anybody push that we should still have those minimal data, standard minimal data elements to be captured on all of our, uh, in all of our databases to, to still paint a picture irregardless of a pandemic. Okay, so you know I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. And Vivian, I'm so glad you raised that because if you have noticed, um, in, when Marcella Nunes-Smith, who is the Biden transition team's health equity um, yes. um, expert, advisor, she she has um, made it very clear that she understands how important it is for collect data. We've spoken about this issue as well. And I completely agree with you. That has been the biggest frustration. We have seen early on where folks do not want to go as granular. You know, I feel like, goodness, uh, 15 years ago, it's it's amazing to look back. You're, you know, going back two decades and we're still having this fight saying we need that granular yes. level of data. We need to actually have a, um, a real seamless, right, collection of this data. We've got to do more to educate people about why um, it is important to collect this demographic data, right, and to get that um, granular level of detail, that minimal level of detail, right, and even, and even more granular. But um, that has been a war that we have been fighting um, over the last decades. I know that you know we've made some improvements, and I'm glad you raised the the ACA because when we when we were working to advance this health equity agenda in the Affordable Care Act, the number one issue for all of us, right? We had 300 organizations that you know came together under this umbrella of health equity that we were looking as our North Star, the advancement of health equity in this, um, in this bill, right? The Affordable Care Act. So right, right. data collection and reporting was our number one priority. And we try to get that, you know, get some provisions in there that would require HHS across the board that all federal activities, um, programs, and surveys had to collect at a minimum these demographic variables, right? And had to report mm-hmm. it out to us. Well, we know that, you know, after the Obama administration, the Trump administration came in and they immediately went about preventing um, the, the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evalu- Evaluation, ASPE, uh, for collecting some, for allowing us to see that data, um, not really enforcing the collection of this data. We know too that they would not go um, to the level that we needed in terms of granularity. So I am, I am, I am with you. You are absolutely right. We have got to do a better job. Um, across government, right, at all levels to collect this and to start collaborating in the collection of this data, or else we won't be armed with the evidence that we need to continue pushing this. It's it's one of the reasons why 
I've been trying to build the infrastructure, um, what we call the health equity tracker, where we can get yeah. hand, our hands on this data to, to showcase for people across the country um, how inequities look, right? And again, it goes back to your original question about it's abstract for many folks, right? It can be so abstract right. for young people right. for other leaders. And, and so creating this tool then where folks can go and see, oh, in my community, oh, this is what they're talking about. This makes sense then. Arm them with the data so that they can go to their policymakers and say, you know what? Uh, from a public health standpoint, we've got to address this. Look what's happening in our community. We have that data. So if if there are policymakers trying to hide that data, well, hopefully they'll be able to arm themselves with this information from this data platform that we're creating. And it's going to be, the data will be completely democratized, um, accessible mm. to everyone. That's the beautiful part about that, right? Whether you're right. a researcher, a public health leader, a community leader, um, you know, clergy representing your congregants, mm-hmm. you'll be able mm-hmm. to access this. And we hope use that, right, to, to help develop. And, and pass and implement and enforce these policies that will enable you to elevate health equity in your communities. That's the goal there. So data is absolutely important. And I'm with you. <laughs> so I'm glad you pushed okay. back. <laughs> so let's so let's talk about data just a little yeah. further as, as to how to give that some to give that some feet, so to speak, to mm-hmm. give it some some breath, some life. So when I talk to policymakers, they seem to be more more in tune and more engaged when you put a story or a face or put it in, uh, make it real for them, right? right? To give it a personal mm-hmm. appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, you do that in your book, which I liked at the, near the end with Jessica's story. And you really talk about uh, this person through her, through some generational things yes. that have happened in her life and how her, how she has been trying to take two steps forward but systems have driven her two steps back, right? And how we need to understand how all of that works and impacts someone like a Jessica. Yeah. Do we need to do that? Do we need to start doing more storytelling? Do we need to start putting it in that context for policymakers to really hear those of us that are working in the health equity field? I'm trying to figure out, do we need to start maybe reframing how we talk about equity? And I know you might have a thought about that. Do we still need to uh, do we need to do it in a different way um, now that we've got some traction? Now that you said we've kind of, you know, kind of opened some eyes in 2020 moving through this global pandemic. What do you think about that, Daniel? Oh my gosh! I just kind of want to pick your brain on where you. That's a lot to unpack, <laughs> yeah. but you know. But yeah, no, and I and I'm glad you raised it because you're you're absolutely right. Um, I, I I'm going to give you a um, law school answer. <laughs> which okay. you may not like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So I knew that was going to come in somewhere. You that. <laughs> okay. So the answer is it depends, right? I think it depends on who you are in front of. Um, I know that having worked um, on Capitol Hill, I was one of those um, staffers that, you know, these uh, stories resonated um, with me. And, and I wanted to hear those real life stories of folks to understand the struggle, to understand from their point of view, what was going on. There are of course, others who really, quite frankly, um, don't give a damn about that. They may be just focused on the numbers. Right. Uh, And, um, and, 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 and these are still health equity champions I'm talking about. Right. So they may not be the type that look at the stories. They may not be the type, or they may be in the opposite. They look at the numbers and, um, vice versa. So, I, I think that the answer is it depends on who you're before. I think it depends on who 
that person is that um, you're bringing forth to tell that story, right? We know that um, uh, res- racism is alive and well. If you are before a policymaker who does yes, not care or represent um, communities of color, then that might be quite challenging for them to um, be sensitive to the plight of the individual that uh, you're trying to, or the community that you're trying to, to um, create resources for. So I think, you know, in the book, I try to highlight how you might be able to show if you are in a situation where you're in a community that is in the minority, a community that lacks the power and privilege. Um, I showcase Mississippi as, as one example, right, of, of scholarship that was done, um, showing you know that in 2017 in Mississippi, in, in the uh, Mississippi Delta, uh, they have the lowest life expectancy. Um, they have uh, the least power and privilege. And yet at the state level, in the state legislature there, when you look back in 2017, the legislators from that area, from the Delta, um, actually were never successful in passing any of their bills to elevate their communities. Why did that happen? What can we do to ensure then that if you find yourself in such a predicament, that you're able to advocate for your community at that level? Now, of course, there are different levels of government, thankfully. So you might be at the federal level if you have a government that is sensitive to your plight. At the local level, yes, you can try for what you can, right? They're closest to the Mm -hmm. people. So they're more sensitive, mm-hmm. hopefully. But but at that level, let's let's just focus on state, for instance. How do you show then the interconnection of these groups of people? And I think that's really critical that we do so because what affects one group will affect your group eventually. And and I know we're talking about Jessica, but in the first story with the allegory of the orchard in the book, that was ah, the yes, time, that was right good. to show how yes. how we um we really are interconnected. And how what affects one tree, one individual, one community, eventually right. will catch up to the rest. So, so in this country, what I have been trying to do now is to get these folks who may not give a damn about black and brown issues. But here's what I try to bring up with them. Um, and it's that economic and national security um, issue, right? To tie what we are pushing, the health equity agenda, to these issues for these policymakers, because we've recognized that, um, you know, in order to advance health equity, you have to demonstrate the value of investing in change. Of investing in it, absolutely. Of investing in it, correct. Because right. what's what's the prerogative? What what's the incentive for me to use, you know, my power to invest in your community? What is that going to do for my constituents, right? It's a selfish, right. politics is selfish, as we know. And so uh, in the U.S., advocates have to understand the disquieting and that harsh truth that the political determinants of health inequities have rarely been addressed, right? Unless, unless their reduction or elimination served other purposes. So we have to help these lawmakers in power understand how reducing and eliminating health disparities in a community over here that you may not necessarily be representing will actually benefit the entire state, will benefit your community in the long run. We've got to tie it. I'm I'm glad you're saying that, but here's here's the the, the problem that I see. Yes. And you you may not see it this way, but we have created such a divide us versus them mentality in this country. Yes. That that what's good for you is good for me as well. That ideology I think is getting lost. 
And I think it's Agreed. falling on deaf ears right now. Agreed. So how do we do that, Daniel? How do we how do we close that divide, that humanity? How do we bring that humanity piece back? Because to me, that's an issue of not only poly, not only of the head, but the heart as well. And I guess yes. that's harder. So how do you know those of us you know, that are working in equity? How do we do that? Yeah, I, I well, another great question. And and again, I'm definitely <laughs> aligned with you on this one. When when you asked the question, it reminded me of uh, a similar argument that was made during Martin Luther King Jr.'s time where you know he had been pushing for our civil rights leaders our champions right he was trying to get um you know the community uh to really stand up for their rights and 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 push for legislation um what we now you know call these political determinants of health and he tried to make the case for how policies um these regulations legislation laws um case laws and and, and whatnot how they actually you know impact our health and well-being and and Martin Luther King Jr., as he was making that case, we're saying we need to get involved in this process, um, actually came up against some folks, uh, Black leaders who said, well, you know, Dr. King, Reverend King, mm, that's all good and dandy, right? But, you know, shouldn't we just be focusing on education and religion? The whole issue of the heart and mind, right? And mine, and, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, and he he you know stopped and he listened, he contemplated, and um, he says, "You're absolutely right. You're half correct. <laughs> um, it is an and, not an or. It is both." So gotcha. I I would absolutely say I agree with that. That yes, we do need to educate people. We've got to educate in our schools and our universities and colleges. We've got to you know you know in the churches you know, continue to, to, you know, um, help folks understand, to really push for love and valuing of people equally and so forth. So all of that is important because these values that we create uh, in the education and in the spiritual realm, you know, they do influence, they do impact our They policy, do, right? Especially so, in our black and brown folks. That's, that's right. That's inherently important. So, yes. And we've got to build those relationships right at that level. I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, before she she died, when she was talking about the divide in the country, um, you know, recognize that we have become so segregated. Um, you know, we we haven't had chances to become familiar with one another. And so then you look at the person you know, not as an equal, not as a human being, not the way that you would maybe a family member or so forth, right? And and and, right. and, and that's how, you know, you see this um, animosity, this attitude of us versus them uh, continues <laughs> to be fueled, right? So I yeah. think Ginsburg um, hit it on the head there. I think Martin Luther King is right. And then, and then for the and section, what King was mentioning was, yes, all of that is true. We do need education. We do need religion. We do need to keep pushing that in those realms. Um, and we have to understand, though, why you know engagement in the political process is so important. Because while I cannot force um, you know my fellow human being to love me, I can at least prevent them from lynching me. I can ensure ah. that there is an expectation in terms of how you behave, right? In this respect. Right. So he right. was pushing back on that notion. So yes, they all come together, 
right? It's not an or, they all come together. We need to do it at all these levels. Downstream at that educational um, level, when it comes to the churches and ensure that our uh, religious leaders, these clergy, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, et cetera, um, understand the roles that they play, understand uh, what we need to be doing to ensure that we are creating a society that is more inclusive and equitable, because they all play a role. I mean, we could talk about religious determinants of health, right? Um, right, so exactly. Yeah, critical. But they all they all come together in this in this piece in this in this uh, process. I just I think we all need to figure out where in that process we fit. Absolutely. What what, what skills right. that we have that can be utilized where? Yes. You know, where am I best? Where should I? Where can I do the best work? You know, what what part of all of this do I fit in? And I think that's what uh, I, I'm trying to relate to my girls. I'm, I'm trying, I hope I, sure you're trying to relay that to your kids, you know, be a part of the process, Yes. get involved, yep. figure out where you can, where you can make a difference. That's and right. I hate, you know, that some people might say, well, that's a cliche. That sounds, you know, so contrived. Where are you like a PSA? Where can you make a difference? But I think it's very, very apropos here as, as we walk through your book and talk about how all of that ties together and how never realizing the impact that it's had historically. Right. I mean, I really read the book and I was like, wow, I never connected the dots like that. I never mm -hmm. thought about going back past, like you said, 150 years mm -hmm. to see something that started out when we got here to this country yes. and how infrastructures were put in place. They were intentional. And right. I think that's, we, and I think that's what we need to to realize. These were intentional things, that's right. and and they and and there's and the system's not broken. I hate to hear people say that it's working fine. Right, it's doing what it was supposed to do. <laughs> that's right. It's not broken. Nope. It's actually working. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I hate for us to kind of perpetuate that idea. Mm -hmm. So I I, I kind of give people a little educational moment moment there when I talk to them. But now I've got some more um, ammunition from your book. So thank I thank you. you so much for giving us that. And I recommend everyone read it. Um, I'm sure that this is going to, to be um, topics of conversation moving forward, Hap given what's happening with some of the, the changes in, in um, leadership that's going to be coming to Washington, D.C., excited about some of the, the potential that's there. Yes. Um, and hopefully <laughs> things We'll continue to move and, and we'll continue to see some inequities and social injustices addressed and policy put in place to kind of move us forward and not backwards. Do you have any closing remarks for us, um, Daniel, of those of us that work in the movement? You say in your, your book that the health equity movement is at a tipping point. And um, I'm wondering what that really means for us that are working in the trenches um, and those of us that are trying to address those inequities and social injustices in our local communities or in our states, what can you give us? Yeah, close when, us out? When you talk about, thank you for that, Vivian. So, you know, when we talk about this tipping point, I think what actually gave me hope um, these last few years um, after 2016 was the fact that um, when you look at the Affordable Care Act, for instance, right, which I, I said is our right. most comprehensive and inclusive equity-focused health policy post-Reconstruction. And I thought, surely, when I wrote 150 Years of Obamacare, I was concerned that this law could see a similar fate like the Freedmen's Bureau Act did in, 18, in 1872 
right? Right, right. So, so on the seventh anniversary, as we're getting close to that, or after the election, I thought, oh my goodness, are we going to see a similar fate? Well, thankfully, um, there were you know a groundswell of advocates who recognized if we do not speak up, if we do not stand up for this um, important health reform law, then we could lose it. We can unravel the gains that we've made, the protections that we've made. And so we we did push back. Um, we did not have this law repealed. So now it is the longest surviving um, health policy that, uh, you know, elevates health equity. And, um, and and so for me, you know, when we talk about the tipping point, we now are at a, a place where, you know, we we understand what it's going to take um, to move this needle, and I and I do think it's important that we understand that health equity begins and it's going to end with the political determinants of health. And so, if we understand where we came from, if we understand um, the context in which all of this was created, then as we move forward, I am hopeful that uh, we'll we'll continue to elevate this great work and we'll continue to to um, highlight these determinants um, and, and address them, right, effectively. And we'll be able to produce the actionable solutions that we so desperately need and want, right, in this country right. to ensure that we have a, a level playing field for all. So um, that that's what I would just say to thank everyone for their work. I want to thank you as well for your leadership and, and just continue to, you know, uh, urge everyone to... Um, uh, continue to be involved, right? It. You, I know it's right. exhausting. I know it's tiring. God knows I it is. Sometimes. But but we got to keep moving for your children, for my children, for the next generation. It's only fair. Absolutely. So I know we're going to have continued conversations, not just with the the National Association of Chronic Disease D- Directors and our Health Equity Council, but you know other organizations that we're a part of. And I think coll- that that collective voice, that collaborative voice, is going to be what we need moving right. forward. So, and we're going to be looking to you, to our leaders and and future books that you're going to write and opportunities that you're going to have to share. I'm, I'm putting that in. I'm speaking All that right into now. Don't get me in trouble, <laughs> Vivian. You know, my wife. Because <laughs> I know <laughs> that there are going to be good things coming from you, yes. Daniel. And yes, I appreciate you. you so much for having this conversation with us. And stay tuned for more conversations like this one from the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors Health Equity Council. We hope you've enjoyed it and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Race Towards Health, a podcast series from the Health Equity Council at the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Visit chronicdisease.org to find other Race Toward Health Equity podcasts or for more information about NACD's work on racial justice and health equity. You can also see links to our state resources and credits in our episode description. Till next time.